everybody. Happy anniversary, Noel. This is John Oates here. And welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. It's my one-year anniversary show with my very special guest, John Oates. I can't believe it's been a year already since I started this show. I want to thank everyone who's supported me. I can't do without you guys. To all the guests I've had on the show, special thank you for giving me your time. I know it's all valuable. It's amazing the quality of guests I've had on this show. They've all been great. And just goes to show you that if you don't ask, they're not gonna come on. When I started the show, I made a list of potential guests who I wanted to have on the show right away. And John was on the list, so I've been able to cross him off now, as well as half the list. John was out promoting his memoirs, Change of Seasons. I listened to the audiobook. It's phenomenal. It goes into great detail about his life. I only had John for about 15 minutes, so I had to make the best of my time. I had a bunch of questions I didn't get to. I should have ordered them a little better, but hopefully I'll have them on for my second anniversary. John was great, and here's my conversation with John. And once again, thank you to everyone who's listened for the past year. Let's make the second year even better.
And helping me relive my youth today is John Oates. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Good to talk to you, Noel. So I finished the audio version of your memoir, Change of Season, and phenomenal listen. Talk a little bit about why you decided now to release a book. Well, the book came about in a very unusual way. Um, I had been doing a series of interviews with a guy named Chris Epting, and uh, every time I do an, ear, an interview, uh, he he, very, he dug deep in, into uh, my life and my music and seemed to have a, a good handle on, you know, kind of uh, who I was uh, as a person and as a musician. And uh, eventually, you know, uh, stories began to unfold in the course of the interviews. And he said to me, man, if you, you should write a book one day, and if you ever want to do it, I'd like to help you. And that's kind of how it started. Um, I had a series of uh, journals that I kept uh, written by hand. Uh, through the entire decade of the 70s and uh, made copies of them for Chris so he could take a look at them. And that kind of kick-started the project. And from there, we uh, we went into the memory banks. And, uh, you know, Chris is a great researcher, and he has a lot of experience. Uh, he's published a num- number of books himself. So he uh, he kind of walked me through the, the process. And uh, our collaboration was really good. Um, I was really happy the way we worked together. Some of the stories were fascinating. I was really... Uh... Interesting. I had no idea that you were in a band with Frank Stallone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was that like? What kind of musician was he? Uh, Frank was good, man. He's, he's still singing and playing to this day. Um, it was a folk rock band, um, kind of like a Buffalo Springfield, okay. you know, uh, Moby Grape kind of thing, uh, late 60s. Uh, and uh, Frank was a real good singer. And, um, and you know, it's funny, I, I, I just met his niece, okay. uh, who's Sylvester Stallone's daughter. Um, I met her at, a, at one of our shows in California, and we were just laughing about Frank and, and uh, the back. She couldn't believe, you know, she's a young girl, and so, you know, I'm sure Frank's been telling her stories over the years, so it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm sure. And your your trip to Europe was like, wow, I mean, I, I wish I could, like, been there with you. That was that was pretty... Uh, that was a pretty amazing trip, I have to say, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, so when, when you came back from Europe, that's pretty much when you decided to be really focus in on your music, correct? Well, you know, I, I always, in the back of my mind, I never really considered that I'd really do anything else. But I didn't know what I was going to do, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. Um, I had met Daryl in the 60s, but and we knew each other, and we hung around, but we weren't working together at all. Um, and it wasn't until I came back from Europe and got basically, you know, had nowhere to go and ended up at his house, um, that's when we started working together. So really, it was a fortuitous, uh, you know, situation. Uh, this kind of trip that happened, and in, in just these circumstances that you know you can't you can't plan on certain things like that. Yeah, and both of you guys had like the same musical type background, correct? You both liked the same types of music. Well, yes and no. Uh, we had a, we had a lot of similarities. We both, you know, in our love of, of R and B, you know, doo wop and things like that, but. Daryl had a classical background, which I didn't have, and uh, I had a folk and blues background, which he didn't have. And so we kind of combined all that stuff together. All right, so it made for like a good like combination, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about Lynn Tolliver and how he championed Sarah's smile and helped it become a hit. I can feel 
watching in the night All alone with me I was waiting for the sunlight When I feel cold You warm me And when I feel I can't go on You come and And that became a hit because he played it on the radio as an album cut, and eventually the response was so great that RCA decided to try to release it as a single. And another one of your great songs, She's Gone, had an interesting journey to the top five. She's Gone was, came, came out in 1973 and was kind of a, a semi-hit, I'd say. Um, then She's Gone was covered by a group called Tavares, who had a number one R&B record with it. Right. And then after Sarah Smile came out in 1975, Atlantic Records re-released She's Gone. And then it finally went into the top five. She's gone. She's gone. Oh, I, 
But the story, the, the inspiration for She's Gone was kind of a really interesting story. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, there, was a, there was some girl that I had met in the village. Uh, she was a kind of wacky chick, and, and uh, we met, and, um, she, you know, we were going to get together on New Year's Eve, and she never showed up. So I just kind of wrote She's Gone because I figured if she wasn't coming that night, she wasn't coming at all. And um, that's kind of where it came from. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah so, yeah, so now you guys are uh, performing now with Train uh, this summer. Last year, I saw you guys with Tears for Fears. That was a phenomenal show. How, like, and you've been doing kind of these, like, twin bills for a while now. How do you decide on who you're going to play with? Do you reach out to the other bands? Do they kind of reach out to you? Uh, both, and any combination thereof. You know, we, we, um, we try to work with people we like, uh, obviously, and, and work with people we know or we've had a, a previous relationship, musical relationship with. That's kind of how it's always worked. Um, you know, I mean, we, you know, we've toured with so many people over the years. You know, uh, just in the last 15 years, you know, Michael McDonald, Kenny Loggins, the Average White Band, uh, you know, Mayor Hawthorne, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, uh, Trombone Shorty, um, you know, on and on and on. Uh, you know, it's just people we dig and people we feel will make a great musical evening for the for the audience. Right. Yeah. The first time I saw you, you played with uh, Carly Simon. I mean, Carly Jones Simon, Beach. sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and the list goes on and on right. and on. Now, you guys, like, you have your your fifteen to twenty songs you play. 
How difficult is it to kind of arrange a playlist for a show? Well, it's not very difficult for us because we know the songs that people want to hear. They want to hear the big hits. And as you play these big arenas that we're playing now, you know, it really comes down to people want to hear the big hits. And, and that's just kind of how it is. Um, we have, you know, we have over 400 songs that right. we've written in our career. Uh, obviously, we can't play them all. And we can't even play a, a, poor, you know, a small percentage of them. So we focus on the hits because that's what people want to hear. And then we always add a little something, you know, a little surprise here and there. We go back into our album our album tracks and pick out a song or two um, like that. Yeah, do you ever guys like ever think of like what Steely Dan's done? They've gone on a tour and they play like each an album each you know night. Maybe like do like a War Babies type thing or a Band of Luncheonette followed with like you know Big Band Boom mm -hmm. or something like that. Uh, maybe that'll happen down the road, but not right now. In the book, you told a great story of how you went from the American Music Awards straight to a recording session of We Are the World. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? We were told that we were going to go do a, a song together that Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie had written. Um, so we were very aware, aware that that's what we were going to do.
an amazing experience to be in a room all together with uh, I don't think you could ever put, pull something like that off again um, because you know you have to remember back in those days the American Music Awards there weren't a lot of award shows and there wasn't like everything that's happening like there is now where you have an award show or a, you know something like that every every other week um, so everyone who was in the world of pop music at that time pretty much was in L.A. for the American Music Awards. So it was easy to assemble everybody. So that's what made it unique. I mean, I had, you know, I had Bob Dylan standing behind me, and I had uh, Ray Charles standing in front of me. I mean, so, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was just pretty incredible. Yeah, and you told the story in a book how Ray Charles kind of wrangled everyone together on some of the... Yeah, he wasn't right? taking any shit. He was just, uh, he, wanted to, he wanted to do it, and he wanted to get it done, and, um, and there was, you know, he wanted to make sure everything stayed on track. Right, yeah. And then, I believe the same year, I was 10 years old when Live Aid came out. I remember watching that fabulous concert. Um, that experience, too, for you must have been great with, you know, Mick Jagger and Tina Turner and everybody else. Oh, yeah, that was incredible as well. Yeah, and I remember like, Phil Collins flying from... Uh, Wembley to the U.S. for a former the U.S. side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was you know, it was in Philadelphia. You know, it was our hometown. It was uh, probably one of the probably the biggest rock festival that had ever been. You know, it was televised around the world. Um, first time I think a festival had ever been or a concert had ever been televised around the world. So it was a very you know very heavy duty moment. You know. Right. Yeah. And there's some of the songs I want to get into now kind of like the origins um you have obviously man eater which you know one of your early hits in the 80s talk a little bit about that one
You know, it, it, it's a long story, but um, I, I, you know, I, there was a girl who was incredibly beautiful. She walked into a, a restaurant where I was hanging out with some friends, and she sat down at the table and captivated everyone with her beauty, but she also had a foul mouth, and she swore like a sailor. And, hmm. and it was kind of this incredible beauty with this incredible vulgarity that kind of, uh, kind of really <laughs> got me inspired. And then... Uh, but then really the song ended up when Daryl and I got together and finished the lyrics, uh, the verses, it really, it was really more about New York City. It was a metaphor for the go-go 80s of New York City, and the man-eater was, was New York City itself that could chew you up and spit you out rather than a woman. Another one that, one of my favorites was uh, I Can't Go For That, and I think that's like sampled by pretty much every R&B artist and rap artist as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, was that an easy song for you guys to collaborate on?
Um, well, that's John Darrell actually had, that was his idea. Um, it was after a session was over, um, and uh, he just walked out into the studio, and he had this idea in his head. And he started playing, he hit the drum machine, which is the beat you hear, and he just started to uh, groove um, on the keyboard. And basically, that's the whole song right there. Uh, I played a little guitar part. Charlie played a little sax part. We put background vocals on it, and that's the end of it. There, there was no band involved or anything like that. It was kind of done uh, in a very kind of uh, organic way. Right. And um, the first album I had of yours on, on vinyl was Voices. And... Uh, Giddy Doo Wop was my favorite song on there. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, the, I had no idea that it was kind of based on a true story. <laughs> Look at me, I'm running. What have I done? Oh, I must have hurt someone. Stuck in some Oh, I hear the voice 
Yeah, uh, that that was based on um, on a headline of a newspaper of a guy who was um, who was chopping people up on the subway with a with a, a machete, and uh, we just um, we just said, "Wow, wonder what would make someone." We just thought to ourselves, "What could possibly be in someone's head that would make them do something like that?" And then we thought maybe he had a doo-wop song stuck in his head. And he couldn't get rid of it, and it drove him insane. And that was just a crazy songwriter fantasy that we decided to, to give it a try. How, how often does stories like that, or just like rip from the headlines, so to speak, like stuff like that influence you guys to write songs? Uh, it can happen in any way, man. You know, um, you never know how that's going to work. You know, you just, when you're a songwriter, what you do is you, you try to be open to, um, you know, you try to be open to the world around you. And, and, Songwriters just translate things in different ways, uh, so that's you know kind of how that works. Yeah. How, how how often or at all have you gotten a writer's block? Um, when I get a writer's block, I don't really get a writer's block because I don't I ignore it and I just move on. I do something else. Uh, so I don't sit there and obsess about it and go, oh my God, I got a writer's block. I can't write. Um, I just forget it. I just go for a drive or go for a hike or. Do something else. Uh, so, I, writer's block's never been a problem for me. Right. Okay. Now, some pretty per, uh, personal stuff. Um, I know you were big into tennis, and I heard like you lived near Matt Vlander, correct? <laughs> yeah. Well, I lived uh, pretty close to him. Became very good friends with him in the in the late eighties. Um, used to go to tennis tournaments with him and uh, helped him build his studio at his house. Uh, hung out with him. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a great story about you playing tennis with John McEnroe. Yeah, one right before the U.S. Open, he'd have uh, Mats would have all his buddies come over and they would practice and uh, train together. And um, <clears throat> one day I went over there just to you know kind of hang out. I had my tennis racket and and Mac was on the court loosening up and there was nobody else out there. And he asked me if I wanted to hit some balls with him and I was like hell yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so while the other guys were inside eating or lunch or whatever, uh, John Macro and I just played tennis together with nobody around. Just the two of us. It was crazy. Um, you know, of course, I couldn't, you know, hit a ball with him, but I, I did my best, you know, and, uh, yeah, he's a cool guy. We hung out a lot. Yeah. Was he acting like the same way as he was? Yeah, he was. Time? He was kind of doing his John Macro thing. You know, if he hit a shot he didn't think was good, even though he was playing against, a, you know, an, an amateur like me, um, it still bugged him. You know, it was like that, that but, you know, that's the essence of perfection. That's the, that's the, the drive that made him, a, you know, a champion. Right, yeah. Do you still um, you still race at all? No, I don't race, but I still like my cars. I you know I like to drive. I have a, you know some sports cars, and I drive them in the countryside in Tennessee. Uh, I love doing that. Yeah. Now speaking of like you know Tennessee and being in like um, you're also in Nashville. Uh, did you get involved at all with the Predators' magical run the last couple of years? Oh yeah. Well, you know, if you're in Nashville, you can't avoid being swept up in the in the, in the Predators. Uh, you know, they are, they are who they are. You know, everybody loves them. Thanks for your time, John. Okay, thanks, buddy. See ya. Okay, bye. bye. And a special thanks to John for joining me today. Go check out his memoirs, Change of Seasons. You learn a lot about the man behind the mustache. You can follow him on Twitter at John Oates, at Hall Oates, hallandoats.com. 
You can follow me on Twitter at TheVerseNoel19. Be sure to like the page Reliving My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes. We have a year's worth of shows now. Check out all the past episodes. You can rate and review the show. I'd really appreciate it. I'm also on Podbean right now. And a special thanks again to everyone who's made this first year amazing. I can't do without you guys. And be on the lookout for year two of Reliving My Youth real soon. Decide.